If there is an uprising in the West Bank, it will likely be armed in some way, but it will be politics that decides the form, specifically whether or not there can be a realignment and unification of the resistance based on willingness to uh, combat the occupation. Should that prove possible to operationalize in the West Bank, then I think we will see something like a more coordinated form of uh, uprising. Hello and welcome to another episode of Interregnum, PTO's show within a show, where I talk with Richard Seymour about global current events and much else besides. In today's episode, we discussed the possibility of Israel's assault on Gaza, leading to broader escalation in the Middle East. We talked about the strategic calculations of Iran, Hezbollah, the Houthi militia and Israel, the possibility of the United States increasing its involvement on Israel's side, and whether the attack on Gaza might destabilise Egypt. And finally, we talked about the proceedings at the International Court of Justice, where South Africa has asked the ICJ for an urgent order declaring that Israel is in breach of its obligations under the 1948 Genocide Convention. If you find today's episode interesting and useful, please consider becoming a supporter of the show on Patreon. You can support the show from as little as £1 per month, and £5 supporters get access to PTO Extra. Bonus episodes including listeners' questions, where recent guests respond to questions sent in by PTO supporters. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Richard Seymour is the author of many books, including Disaster Nationalism, which will be published later this year. So Richard, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the chances of Israel's assault on Gaza expanding to Lebanon or or even to a confrontation with Iran substantially increase. On the 2nd of January, the IDF killed Hamas leader Saleh al-Aruri in Beirut, having hitherto largely, although not entirely, confined their airstrikes in Lebanon closer to the so-called Blue Line, the, uh, the border area. Then on January the 8th, the Israelis killed Wissam al-Tawil, a senior commander of Hezbollah's elite Radwan force, in an airstrike in southern Lebanon. Meanwhile, the Israeli Air Force have also ratcheted up their attacks on Hezbollah and Iranian military personnel in Syria and on Syrian air defences. Tensions have been inflamed further by the Houthi militia's attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, and the US and Iranian-backed militias have also uh, exchanged fire in Iraq. Now, the Israelis have made it clear that they regard the status quo ante on the frontier with Lebanon as intolerable to them. And Netanyahu recently commented that Israel is, quote, committed to bringing about a fundamental change on its border with Lebanon. But do you think Israel is in fact deliberately trying to escalate the conflict to Lebanon and perhaps beyond right now? Uh, Or is it possible that pre-existing threats such as Hezbollah's pretty formidable missile, rocket and drone arsenal are now viewed in a different way than they were before the conflict began, and that Israel is primarily engaged in attempting to restore its deterrent capacity after the IDF's humiliation on October 7th. If, on the contrary, Israel is indeed seeking to expand the war to Lebanon right now, what's the strategic logic? Wouldn't it make more sense to wait since the IDF is still carrying out major operations in Gaza? Why deliberately seek a two-front war at this point? Yeah, so it's a really good and difficult question um, because, I mean, first of all, I think it's clear that Israel's internal picture is that it is already de facto involved in a multi-theater war, even if it doesn't blow up into a a full-scale regional conflict. So, for example, recently the Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said the war was effectively happening in seven theaters, Gaza, 
Lebanon, Syria, um, the West Bank, which you referred to as Judea and Samaria, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. So he was threatening further attacks, specifically in Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. Manifestly, that does have the potential to provoke a regional war. And it's also a risk that the IDF is saying that the war in Gaza, even if they scale it down significantly so that the genocide is blunted, it could take at least a year. So the longer that goes on, the stronger the chances there are of a regional war blowing up. They're currently able to get away with bombings in Lebanon and Syria um, and elsewhere because their targets don't want to go to a full-scale war. But that calculation could change. And I know we're, we're coming back on, on the Lebanon question, um, so I'll develop that further then. As to whether that's the intention, as far as I can see, news reports suggested that a regional war was actually being discussed in the immediate afterglare of Operation Al-Aqsa Storm. Specifically, Israel's war cabinet initially considered that they would attack both Lebanon and Gaza simultaneously. And of course, as you know, Netanyahu also accused Iran of having staged the attacks. Now, on both of those issues, there was some quiet pushback from the Biden administration. They said they'd no evidence of Iran's involvement. They applied pressure not to widen the war. And I think that matters because where the U.S. administration draws the line um, makes a difference here. Secretary of State Blinken has been pretty happy to adopt adopt most of um, Israel's desiderata and to call that policy. I think you might remember that he was the first to embrace Israel's deranged policy of expelling Gazans into the Sinai Desert and to try and sell it to Arab states with a promise of aid. He had no idea how unacceptable that would be. But on a wider war, he and the administration have been cautious, and that matters because Netanyahu probably only really wants a regional war if the U.S., will join and ideally lead the attack. I mean, he's been proselytizing for an American war with Iran for years, for example, beginning in the Bush administration. I see recently that uh, former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has been in the pages of the Wall Street Journal um, boasting about two attacks that he ordered in Iran, I think in around 2021, which Israel didn't take responsibility for at the time, and urging the US to collaborate with Israel in a comprehensive encirclement and assault on Tehran, though he doesn't outright call for an invasion. I think the current situation is concerning because Israel is um, talking up the prospect of a full war on Hezbollah in Lebanon, and that threat was recently conveyed by Benny Gantz, who is not, you know, a far-right minister. He's the voice of the IDF establishment in the government mm. or in the war cabinet. And, and tipped to be the next Israeli prime minister as well, right? I mean, very easily, because uh, once the war is over, I think Netanyahu might well uh, lose a, an election. It's interesting that um, the far-right are not really focused immediately on going to war with Iran or Lebanon. Obviously, they want to do all these things, but they're much more concerned with depopulating Gaza and colonizing the West Bank right now. U.S. intelligence has felt compelled to warn Israel that they just don't have the capacity to sustain a war on Lebanon while also engaged in Gaza. Um, And that just seems obvious, given how badly the war against Hamas has gone. So despite the IDF claiming that Hamas has been scattered and they're without a framework and without commanders, and that the Hamas military infrastructure in northern Gaza Strip has been completely dismantled, they keep losing 
not just soldiers, but senior military leaders in northern Gaza. So most recently, Haaretz uh, published the details of a l- lieutenant colonel who was a senior division commander killed in battle. And this was in an area that uh, Israel had flattened with bombs and claimed to have under control. And that's a regular occurrence in northern Gaza. They've been talking about withdrawing forces from the north, but the Al-Qassam brigades continue to post footage with, uh, you know, those familiar red triangles bearing down on the tanks that they've just shelled showing that they're still active and operating. So you could argue that it's precisely because of their failure to make a dent on Hamas's military infrastructure in Gaza that the assassination of Saleh al-Aruri that you mentioned, who was a founder of the Al-Qassam Brigades in the West Bank, along with a number of other Hamas cadres at the time, that's uh, quite important. This is why this matters, because the attack took place in the Dahiya neighborhood of Beirut, Hezbollah has always said it will respond to any such attacks on Lebanese soil by escalating. I think uh, if Israel can achieve a a regional escalation through such strikes, they may well draw the Biden administration against its own preferences into expanding its involvement. Uh, You notice that Washington is now blaming Iran for the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, which, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that's uh, implausible in a statement coming from U.S. Central Command, which is the sort of statement you would make if you're preparing for a military escalation in an election year. And that would, for Israel, um, if the war was expanded in in a way that uh, the U.S. would help them win it, that would compensate somewhat for a thus far lackluster military performance in Gaza. Do you think that the Americans are savvy enough to understand that the Israelis may be wanting to draw the Americans further into the war because the Israelis understand that that is perhaps the only way of achieving their more ambitious objective of really transforming the balance of forces in in the region? I mean, you mentioned there that the Americans were arguing, as you say, that the Israelis couldn't conduct a two-front war. Um, But is it possible that, you know, obviously the Americans are hardly a disinterested party and that that analysis may have actually been a way to try and exert pressure to uh, try and prevent such an escalation coming about? Oh, yeah, I think they are trying to prevent such an escalation. But My read of it is that, yes, they're aware that Israel wants to uh, loop them into this. They're aware that much of what Israel is doing is counterproductive, even from within its own terms. They're just not prepared to do any of the things that they could do to rein Israel in. How much of a factor in the war's possible expansion and escalation do you think is Netanyahu's determination to stay in office? Do you think that is very considerably a factor or, or, or do you think there can be a tendency to overestimate Netanyahu's influence on how the war is being conducted? And the more attention should be paid to the positions of people who you've mentioned, such as the Defence Minister, Yav Gallant, or Benny Gantz, the minister without portfolio in the emergency cabinet. Let's give the argument the maximum that we can. Netanyahu is personally implacable. I mean, that's one thing that comes across in the biographies of him and throughout his career. It's not just that he's a skilled Machiavellian opportunist and networker and a pretty hardcore ideological Zionist. He's someone who just doesn't give up. And in one of the biographies, there's a scene discussed um, in the hours before the 1996 election, which you might remember he won with a hair's breadth. I think it was uh, less than 1%. And they're asking him, how can he be so calm? 
And he says, well, as long as I can do something, I'm not calm. I mean, I have to do everything in my power. But once it's out of my hands, then I'm calm. And that fits the character. It's one of the few things that uh, we know for sure about him. And it makes this genocidal warmonger such a dangerous rival. He will not quit until every possibility has been explored. He also knows Israel's power structure from top to bottom. He's been in the IDF Special Forces Reconnaissance Unit. He's been in Israeli embassies in Washington and New York. He's repeatedly had the Likud leadership. He has close ties with major newspapers and business magnates. So we mustn't underestimate his ability to play the forces he's presented with. And, um, you know, recalling the fractiousness of the government coalition that he's assembled, the legal difficulties that he personally faces, from which, as I understand it, he's safe as long as he's in office, the mass protests against him, and the strong chance that the Supreme Court would rule out his court reform laws as unconstitutional, which I think they just did, Netanyahu really needed something like a state of emergency, which, um, you know, 710 was, um, the, the 7th October attacks were damaging to him, his government and the security services. And it destroyed his strategy, by the way, for also neutralizing Gaza and annexing the West Bank by incremental pogroms. But it also handed him the opportunity to assemble uh, for the moment, an exceptionalist or Bonapartist regime, beginning with the war cabinet he brought together. He was very smart to rope um, Gantz and the liberal opposition into a major national war that he led. Um, it also enabled him to let the far right off the leash in terms of catalyzing the attacks on the West Bank, expediting Security Minister Ben Gavir's new militia, which uh, uh, the Israeli liberals believe is a pogromist weapon of the far right. So if you look at it, what's the line coming from the liberals and the disaffected Likudniks? They're saying Netanyahu must resign after the war. Okay, so they're basically telling him, keep the war going. He has every interest in expanding and prolonging the war until he's achieved something he can call a significant victory that would negate all the reasons to get rid of him. So why would he stop unless there was nothing left to be squeezed out of the situation? The fact is, of course, this is a bipartisan war. The IDF is being terrifically bellicose. Netanyahu could not prolong the war if he didn't keep the war cabinet united around it and if he didn't have the IDF on side. What's more, there remains as yet vanishingly little opposition within Israel to keeping the war going despite a brave handful protesting and even sometimes calling out the genocide, which is uh, very risky to them. Uh, so ultimately, his personal interest is significant insofar as he, will, he is able to play this coalition of pro-war and pro-genocide forces. But it wouldn't matter anywhere near so much if Israel as a state and society was not wholly committed to his military agenda. So if there are serious rifts within the state on that front, uh, then he will be in trouble but not before then. I'm not sure if you saw it, but there was a, a recent poll uh, that found that 57% of Israeli Jews support expanding the Northern Front. So uh, as you say, in, in many respects, it seems that Netanyahu's interests align with the uh, desires of the Israeli public. Going back to Lebanon, what do you think are the red lines for each side on Israel's northern border? What might trigger a major IDF assault on Lebanon or on the lines of the 2006 war? And by the same token, what do you think might force Hezbollah to launch attacks at a higher level, having up to this point very carefully calibrated their operations to prevent full-scale war? I think it would be much bigger and more intense than the 2006 war. But just to say, I mean, remember that at the outset of the assault on Gaza, Israel turned a four-kilometer radius near the border, the Blue Line, into a closed military zone, and they evacuated the residents. 
At the same time, they were mobilizing a total of 300,000 troops, uh, of whom only about 40,000 were actually sent to Gaza for the ground invasion. Now, you don't clear out the population, including of fairly big towns, some of them of the size of like 20,000 people, and mobilize that many troops and then stop and tell the people to go back to their homes unless you can meaningfully say that the security situation has changed. So if you were Hezbollah, you would probably calculate that there's no certainty, at least, of Israel sticking to one front. Nasrallah, as we've seen, has been very cautious here. I mean, remember his speech on Gaza for all its boilerplate was actually empty of many specific threats, other than that Hezbollah would continue to fire rockets at targets um, in the north of Israel. And it has struck a few military bases and it's pounded targets in the Shabal Farms area that is occupied by Israel. And it's otherwise hit some scattered targets in the north of Israel. But these attacks mainly have the effect of drawing as I understand it, a small portion of Israel's military capacity to the north. They've killed about nine IDF soldiers in northern Israel. They've also had about 143 of their own members killed. So partly because of Hezbollah's deterioration following its involvement in supporting Assad in the Syria's civil war, and Lebanon's economic crisis, and the party's weakened electoral standing, Hezbollah hasn't really wanted to seek out a full-scale war with Israel. Not sure they would have gone that route anyway. Um, because they're, I would say, they're quite strategically intelligent. On the other hand, Hezbollah has been clear that attacks within Lebanon would trigger escalation, and of course the result of the assassination in Beirut was a flurry of intensified rocket attacks. So the formula, uh, as has been reported by the UK-based Amwaj Media, which is um, a sort of Arab-Persian outlet, uh, is uh, destruction for destruction. Namely, if Israel attacks a Lebanese port, then Hezbollah returns the favor. If it attacks an airport, likewise, it's reciprocal destruction. And that implies that Hezbollah would participate in a full-scale war only if there was a major Israeli offensive like a ground invasion or an aerial blitz. And I think this uh, comes down to what Israel wants to do. Netanyahu was uh, visiting the north recently and he told the troops he said we're ready we can do whatever we want to do but uh, he would prefer this front to be handled without a widespread campaign now if israel's bottom line is that it just wants hezbollah to stop firing the rockets then clearly a widespread campaign would be absurd if however its bottom line is that it wants to change the face of regional politics by destroying one enemy after another then a widespread campaign would be in the works now that's plan a or plan b there's another option that gets us from plan a to plan b which is that if netanyahu is desperate to achieve something that he can present as a victory and if he can't really destroy hamas or secure the release of hostages by military means or disrupt the coordination of the joint operations room of the various palestinian factions that led the attack on 7th of october then he has the incentive to do something which would provoke a Hezbollah attack of a scale that Israel could retaliate against. So plan A, fighting on the northern border with minimal military effort, becomes plan B, declaring war against a second enemy. And given the ideological character of the Israeli government and the political stance of the IDF and the internal dynamics of Israeli politics and the personal characteristics of the Israeli prime minister, I'd say that's a worryingly strong possibility. As you've described, it's it's clear that the Americans would like to uh, avoid any such escalation in Lebanon. And recently we've seen US Secretary of State Antony Blinken touring the region again and, and talking up this threat of, of regionalization. 
What do you think of the prospects of some sort of diplomatic resolution? I mean, there's been discussion around the possibility of, of reviving UN Resolution 1701, uh, which was passed at the end of the 2006 Lebanon War, the provisions of which both Israel and, and Hezbollah have, have violated. But do you think that any resolution would require a ceasefire in Gaza first? Yeah, I do. But um, I have to say, um, and I think we should consider this, I'm not entirely sure how committed the Biden administration is to avoiding escalation. For sure, I think Biden would prefer not to escalate. But I think he would much more strongly prefer not to do any of the things that would result in de-escalation. So, for example, he hasn't applied any conditions to weapons transfers in Israel uh, to Israel. He's ignored American laws requiring oversight on those transfers in the case of human rights violations. He's maneuvered around Congress to expedite the delivery of tank shells and other weapons. He's ordered the government to back up Israel's narrative at every point, including supporting the ludicrous idea that the Al-Shifa hospital was a command center for Hamas. Parenthetically, uh, you may have uh, noticed that while American intelligence initially refused to uh, explicitly back this idea in November, uh, and it was left to Biden, Blinken and Kirby to um, make that case. Anonymous intelligence officials are now endorsing the idea. And Mohan Rabani uh, thinks that this is because the ICJ case, uh, the International Court of Justice case, which I know we'll come back to, uh, will likely hinge partly on that. So... Biden has discounted the civilian death toll, called it Hamas propaganda. He shrugged at the pogroms and offensives in the West Bank. He said nothing about the attacks on civilians and the use of white phosphorus in, never mind Gaza, in Lebanon. You know, His diplomatic support globally has been unyielding. He systematically empowered the most dangerous far-right government in Israel's history with an open checkbook and an incontinent flow of lies and idiocies. And that suggests to me that if Israel decides it is politic and military plausible to attack Lebanon, regardless of what the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency says, it will do so and Biden will order the US government to support it, albeit with some qualms and reservations and concerns. And that's consistent you know, it's telling that when Biden took office, he appointed as Secretary of State the man who helped him draft his position supporting the invasion of Iraq in 2003. You know, um, that's Anthony Blinken. Blinken knows almost nothing about the Middle East, but he is a standard issue liberal imperialist. So perhaps we have been, to some extent, imagining this conflict wrong, because we all know that the US could rein Israel in. And that's been uh, part of the focus. Um, but there's a recent Huffington Post article which interviews American government officials. And among them is a national security official who says, I've been trying to keep an avalanche from falling on Lebanon. And so have a lot of people. And the problem is no one can rein in Biden. And if Biden has a policy, he's the commander in chief and we have to carry it out. So who is going to rein in Biden? I mean, who could? I think it's clear that the Pentagon is worried about a wider war. I think for military reasons, the Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin is worried, though he's been out of action lately due to cancer treatment. Evidently, there's a whole faction of the US civil service that's alarmed and angry about what the Biden administration's doing, but they will not do anything directly to stop him because he's commander-in-chief. What's more, in an election year, Biden seems to react far more strongly to pressure from the right on such issues than pressure from the left. I think he would react more to the, the right than the left anyway. He'll be more worried about Republicans condemning him for being soft on Hamas and than he will be about the squad criticizing him or the ceasefire left refusing to turn up for him. So my concern 
is that it's entirely possible that the only way to avert escalation might be for someone other than Biden to be the Democratic candidate in the coming election. And that someone would have to be sufficiently different as to alter the dynamic, though that looks like um, an increasingly forlorn hope. The other possibility is that a combination of the popular movements, uh, of military failure in Gaza, and the legal problems at the International Court of Justice, that could just be enough combined to constrain Israel's options. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, it would take a ceasefire to stop this from escalating, because a ceasefire would signal that Israel has militarily failed. And that would be a necessary but not sufficient condition to stop them attacking Lebanon. In terms of the ramifications of the war, it's typically been discussed in the way which we've been talking about it, you know, the prospect of escalation in Lebanon or uh, Iran becoming more directly involved or the Americans becoming more directly involved. But there's also the question of what the conflict might do to other states in the region, such as Egypt, Jordan and, and the Gulf states. Do you think the Israelis underestimate the possibility of the Gaza war leading to destabilization in, in those countries? I mean, after all, under the brief rule of Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, Egypt's relations with Hamas markedly improved and there was speculation uh, that Egypt might even abrogate its security agreements with Israel. Or do you think that the Israelis rightly calculate that Sisi is secure as Egypt's president having decimated most political opposition, and, and that even if he was deposed, any new Egyptian government, regardless of its ideological commitments, would be preoccupied with doing something about the country's economic crisis and its declining importance in the region, rather than seeking to confront Israel with all the disastrous consequences that might follow. I think the latter probably. I think they're aware of the economic crisis across the Middle East and the scale and the depth of the pro-Palestine protests that the regimes have been unable to stop for the sake of their own legitimacy. But I think they also realistically surmise that the conditions for an outright fall of the regimes, which uh, have done so much to con consolidate themselves since the 2011 revolutions, that doesn't presently exist. So, for example, Sisi's founding gesture in overthrowing Morsi in 2013, I think it was, was the massacre in Rabah al-Adawiya Square, uh, which signaled a wave of mass violence, arrests and executions, which, though primarily targeting the Muslim Brothers, also cut through the entire democratic movement, forcing it into retreat for years. And the top military brass took control then of all the levers of the state, including parliament and civil service, as well as deepening their control of the civilian economy. So, since then, Egypt has seen some protests against CC. So, for example, there was a wave of street demonstrations in 2019 and 2020, which was revivifying after years of ugly silence. But there has not been anything like the years of mass mobilization, political subject formation, labor organizing, crucially, that went into the 2011 revolution overthrew Mubarak. Um, and for many Egyptians, the big pro-Palestine demonstrations were their first chance to protest in public since 2011. So given this, you'll notice that Sisi has just won an election with a mere 89.65% of the vote. Um, now, that doesn't reflect a real depth of support. The permitted opposition candidates were extremely timid. They generally avoided criticizing Sisi. The seasoned Nasserist candidate, Ahmed Tantawi, was forced to withdraw. He was the only one that would have been 
uh, a serious opposition. The other candidates, like uh, Farid Sahan, are carefully loyal oppositionists. On top of that, of course, the security forces were found to have bribed voters, intimidated others, escorted some to the ballot box to make sure they voted for CZ. Um, but that really illustrates the depth of the coercive grip that the military has on Egyptian society at the moment, which also thereby exercises strong ideological control, since no one who wants to achieve anything can afford to do anything but mouth platitudes about reform, attack the Muslim brothers, and be nice about Sisi, or at least be silent about him. So it'll take more than Israel's war on Gaza to bring that down. That said, not to dismiss this entirely, there is a genuine risk if the war expands of creating conditions in which there is a perfect storm of discontents connecting the urban working class populations and middle class professionals across the cities and towns in the Middle East that were very active at the outset of the uh, war on Gaza that that could precipitate protracted protests. And one thing I think is very clear is that if the Israelis think Sisi could accommodate them by opening up the Sinai Desert to collect the ethnically cleansed citizens of Gaza without facing turmoil, they're either very stupid or very complacent. I tend to think it's the latter. On another aspect of the conflict, so just today, American and British warships shot down a barrage of rockets, drones and missiles fired at ships in the Red Sea by the Yemeni Houthi militia. This being the most large-scale and sophisticated operation of of its kind that they've mounted, and and there have been 20 such attacks since mid-October. How likely do you think are Houthi attacks on shipping and and American and British reprisals likely to lead to a major escalation? And and how do you adjudge the economic significance of this theatre of the conflict? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, far from certain, it's increasingly plausible that there will be an escalation on this axis too, because the Houthis are having certainly a very serious impact on world shipping, even though in most cases, their explosives don't actually harm any commercial or military vehicles. But there have been a number of major shipping corporations, most recently Maersk, which is the largest operator of container and supply ships in the world. Uh, they paused operations in the Red Sea, and it's estimated that uh, the effect of the Houthis' operations could cut global shipping by 20%, which is a huge impact on the world economy. The reason for this is that although only 10% of container ships actually go through the Suez, the longer routes that they now have to take will absorb 20% of global fleet capacity. For example, about 40% of the container ships that are still operating are experiencing significant delays. We've been there before. We know what that results in. It can cause a supply crunch. It can drive up the cost of consumer goods, send inflation rising again. And uh, obviously, since the US claims leadership in the world system, uh, it also claims the responsibility to do something about that. I mean, this is uh, Biden represents traditional Washington in this respect, uh, hence Operation Prosperity Guardian. Um, the U.S. has been trying to conscript allied states into a naval coalition to defend commercial shipping as it passes through the Red Sea. They've had limited success on that. I mean, both Italy and Spain, who were initially named as part of the coalition, immediately issued statements distancing themselves from it. Uh, which suggests to me that they were not fully informed before the announcement was made, which is a strange foreign policy practice. Of the supposedly 20 coalition partners, uh, eight actually refused to be named in their statement. So it's unclear what this coalition amounts to, and it's unclear what they're actually threatening. They have said, 
that the Houthis will bear the consequences, bear the responsibility of the consequences, pardon me. Okay, so what does that mean? It's quite vague. Are they going to attack the Houthis on land in Yemen at just the point that Saudi Arabia has agreed a peace deal with Iran? Uh, is there any way they could do that and that not result in a more or less direct confrontation with Iran? On the other hand, are they simply talking about escalating against uh, Houthi vessels in the Red Sea? I mean, then again, note that Iran has just dispatched warships to the Red Sea signaling support for the Houthis. Are they going to engage those ships, to use the official euphemism? My read of this is that uh, the U.S. administration doesn't want this to escalate and that the main purpose of the U.S. organizing the response is to prevent Israel from engaging the Houthi directly so they can separate this as a problem from the war in Gaza and isolate it as something akin to piracy, hence the prosperity pitch. You know, they want it to be focused on protecting commerce rather than achieving the geopolitical goals of Israel. Of the logic of the situation with the, the US building up military force in the area, simultaneously freeing up as much Israeli kinetic force as possible by relieving it of the trouble of having to fight the, fight the Houthi, and with various unpredictable dynamics playing out, well, all of that may yet result in some sort of escalation. Um, and I would say, as with Lebanon, the likelihood is increasing. On the Iranians, I mean, it's it's quite striking that the US assassination of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani in 2020 didn't have the kind of almost apocalyptic consequences that many feared at the time. Do you think that perhaps indicates their, their generally cautious posture and that even if we were to see Iran escalate, it, it would probably not be through direct military action, but through its proxies and, and allies elsewhere in the region? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Iran doesn't want to be drawn in directly into a regional war, but it's also not completely passive. So when the campaign against Gaza began, the Iranian foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdul Ahyan, warned that if Israel invaded Gaza, then other fronts would have to be opened. And I assume that this basically um, consists of Iran supporting the groups that are engaging in relatively low-key attacks from Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, the Red Sea. And so far, Israel's response has mainly been limited to attacking those groups, albeit with a characteristically brutal and disproportionate force. This hasn't yet got to the point of a direct Israeli attack on Iranian territory. And that sort of thing has happened in the past. I mean, you mentioned the American Operation 2020, but Israeli attacks have happened in the past without an Iranian uh, direct response. But I think it would be different at the moment. And you may recall that recently when there was two bombs that went off in Iran, killed about 100 people, there was immediate intelligence speculation that Israel may have been behind it. Now, we know that ISIS claimed responsibility, and that did fit with what the best guess of the Iranian intelligence was at the time. But I was struck that a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, speaking before ISIS's claim of responsibility, thought that it may plausibly prove to be the work of an Israeli proxy that got out of hand. Okay, so what Israeli proxies are operating in Iran? And I assume that he was referring to the program of assassinations of Hamas leaders that was ordered by Netanyahu back in October to be carried out by Mossad. And after the recent drone strike in Lebanon that did kill a Hamas commander, Mossad's chief doubled down on the plan. I mean, look, Mossad is not as overweeningly efficacious as it would like us to believe, um, and it wouldn't be unlike them to outsource some work. 
you know, so for example, I can't be sure of this, but I would guess that the Israeli subventions aimed at various Syrian opposition groups during the civil war there were a gift of Mossad. Um, now, if Israel is intent on hunting down Hamas leaders and killing them on the territory of Lebanon, Syria, Iran, and so on, that would be a factor in escalating to war. So I think the most likely thing to cause Iran to escalate would be a major attack on Iranian soil, claiming many lives and, and directly attributable to Israel. And I think that uh, they would decide that they had to act in those circumstances. Though, as you say, they'd probably be uh, most likely to rely, at least initially, on Hezbollah and other groups to do the actual shooting. The Houthis uh, have missiles that are actually capable of striking Tel Aviv and other targets in Israel, as do the Iraqi popular mobilization units that are firing from Al-Qaim and Sinjar. So it wouldn't just be Hezbollah. And I think that that would be the starting point. And of course, you can see how Israel would escalate from there. We've already touched on opposition to Biden's position within centers of U.S. power, including the Department of Defense. And in recent weeks, we saw the public resignation of a Department of Education official and a letter signed by more than a dozen Biden campaign staffers calling for a ceasefire and conditionality on U.S. aid to Israel. Could you talk a bit more about dissent coming from within the administration, where it's coming from, how significant you think it is, and whether it is, in fact, possible that it could cause Biden to change course? Well, look, I mean, from the start, there were signs of covert dissidents, at least, you know, there was a lot of briefing from anonymous officials. Then, you know, there was, as you mentioned, the high profile resignation of Josh Paul. Um, there was a vigil by White House staffers calling for a ceasefire. They were wearing masks uh, to protect their identities. And uh, recently, of course, we've had the letter, the open letter that you mentioned. I think it's now signed by 17 Biden campaign staffers calling for a ceasefire. There had previously been a letter signed by 500 former Biden campaigners. There had been petitions submitted by congressional aides and USAID employees and a letter signed by 700 staffers and political appointees across 30 government agencies and departments calling for a ceasefire. And it's also worth noting that a number of Democratic Congress people, including moderates like Senator Tim Kaine, are deeply unhappy about the Biden administration's practice of bypassing Congress to deliver weapons to Israel. So, and then on top of that, reportedly, there have been these internal dissent cables from within the State Department, which is um, a, a tradition that is allowed since the Nixon administration. It's because of the Vietnam War, um, but they're classified, so we're not allowed to see those. More generally, I think it's true that there's an ideological crisis for the American political center, so that you have um, people like Joanne Reed, who in the past has been a pretty toxic Clintonite and beta of the Sandinistas, um, being quite firm in uh, their condemnation of Israel's war and American support for it. Um, you have uh, former Obama staffers criticizing Biden. You have this uh, podcast, Pod Save America, which is basically a very dull middle-of-the-road podcast laying into Biden. Uh, on this issue. So this is significant. I think what's happening is that the mass movements, despite the efforts to smear and coerce them, are feeding into schisms within the political system. And that is often, in the history of social movements, the occasion for an opportunity cascade where each crisis opens up another fissure and another, and it, uh, you know, tactical innovations in protest breed further innovations. And so, the Biden administration responds to these criticisms with, um, as Blinken said, we're listening. Now, that is obviously false and condescending. There's been absolutely no flexibility in actual policy terms as opposed to rhetorical signals. 
And to some extent, that reflects the fact that they just think their line is the correct one for American imperialism. However, political inflexibility is not necessarily indicative of strength. Um, because if you think about the context, the Biden administration, they've set fire to their foreign policy to throw everything in with Israel. They've had to put the contest with China on the back burner. They're now lobbying Zelensky to move toward a peace agreement with Russia that will be you know, less advantageous to them than had it been a year ago. It uh, has come up with no plausible long-term solutions in Gaza because it's only thinking of Israel's wish list. It wants Mahmoud Abbas to help out, but has nothing remotely serious to offer him. And he's politically desiccated and dying anyway. So my question is how happy is the Pentagon with this situation? Because I I'm aware of some of the signatories in these letters of Pentagon officials. How comfortable is the military leadership with a situation that could lead to another American war in the Middle East? I imagine there's some confusion and disorientation over this drastic foreign policy pivot and the extent of Biden's embrace of Israel's policies and priorities. And the next question is, how much popular pressure will it take to prize open these fissures within the state apparatuses? How much dissent will result in worried calls from Congress people to the White House? How many Democratic officials will feel compelled to back a ceasefire for electoral reasons? How much social disorder, streets being blocked, bridges being shut down, railway terminals occupied, official buildings occupied, vigils held at congressional offices, mass marches, and all of that combined with evident military failure and political exhaustion on the war front, how much would it be enough to cause the policy to collapse? Um, and, you know, we don't have an obvious answer to that, but I'm n not minded to dismiss this internal dissent. I think it really matters, but it matters if it's acted on by popular movements and, of course, by the resistance within Gaza. It's sort of funny when it comes to Biden, because obviously there's been so much discussion around his age and, and, and whether he's sort of, you know, is, is capable of conducting his duties and so on. But perhaps a more serious issue regarding his age is that he is a product of his era, right? And that part of his extreme pro-Israeli politics is that he reflects where the Democratic Party was on the whole, you know, perhaps 20, 30 years ago, rather than where the Democrats are today. Yeah, um, uh, up to a point. I do think the question of his uh, cognitive abilities is not uninteresting and not irrelevant. There have been signs of um, decline, but I don't think that's why he's supporting the policy. It just means, why would you have him as the candidate? It's, uh, it's extremely odd to me that we've got this um, gerontocracy in America where you have people like Mitch McConnell and others uh, who are manifestly, you know, they've been hanging on for far too long. They should have resigned years ago. Um, so that's one part of it. Um, the generational aspect of it, uh, I think that's correct. I don't think even the middle of the road younger generation are going to be as committed to Israeli priorities as the as Biden is. You know, I think that um, we tend to overestimate uh, generational issues sometimes, but in this case, they do have some uh, arguable relevance. You've recently written about South Africa's case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, where South Africa has asked the ICJ for an urgent order declaring that Israel is in breach of its obligations under the 1948 Genocide Convention. Although you're pretty sceptical about international law in, in general, you nonetheless argue that it's quite possible that Israel will lose that case. Can you explain why you think so? Sure. I mean, look, if you look closely at South Africa's application, you'll notice that it does three things very well. 
First is the way it cites precedent. So the core of its argument is that it can bring this case because of its erga omnis partes obligations, meaning as a party to the conventions against genocide, it has the right to try and prevent genocide in co-signatories. Well, the court's decision in the Gambia versus Myanmar, uh, which was about the genocide against the Rohingya, as well as other uh, decisions in cases involving Russia's war in Ukraine and Syria's counter-revolutionary war, establishes very clearly that you can do that. So the expanded uh, application of erga omnes partes has been accepted by the court. It'd be very hard for them to row back on that. Second, it cites the relevant facts based almost entirely on official UN documentation of Israeli attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure in Gaza. Now, that's relevant because the ICJ is um, a UN body. Um, and, you know, so it's not the ICC, even though people talk about the Hague as if they're the same thing. They're not. They're very different outfits. These facts are actually very similar to those seen in the Myanmar genocide against the Rohingya, with the salient difference that the latter took place over the years between 2011 and 2018, whereas a similar scale of killing has taken place in Gaza in just three months. So third thing it does very well is that it assembles a, a range of clear expressions of genocidal intent by Israeli officials. I'm sure I don't need to recapitulate them for the audience. Yeah, they're very familiar by now. But uh, that's been kind of ignored by Western media um, uh, and uh, by Western politicians. But it's as clear as it can be. The Israeli case will apparently say that many of those officials aren't actually deciders, and so they don't matter, and that those who are deciders, well, they didn't mean it the way it's been taken, to which I say good luck with that. This is as watertight as it's possible for such a case to be. There is no such thing as watertight, to be fair. South Africa doesn't have to prove at this stage that Israel is committing genocide. It only has to prove that it has the right to make this case to the ICJ and that the facts that it cites are relevant and plausibly fall within the scope of the conventions against genocide. Now, allowing for the element of rail politic and imperialist arm twisting, and there will be a lot of that. As I said, the ICJ is not the ICC. The latter is a thoroughly politicized body that basically focuses in on prosecuting individual leaders from the global south. The ICJ is, uh, to this extent, a serious court, which is why it's important to make that distinction. I think, however, um, they also, partly because of that, they have to work within their own established formal juridical logic. So for them to say that South Africa's case is inapplicable would require Israel to pull some seriously compelling legal arguments out of the bag. I don't think that bullying and browbeating and crying anti-Semitism are going to work in this case. So I'm not saying that um, uh, South Africa is definitely going to um, achieve a, a preliminary success. But most of the international law experts that I've read have said that South Africa has a fair chance of achieving at least a preliminary win in the sense of getting the court to accept its case and applying provisional measures such as demanding a ceasefire and the admission of humanitarian aid. I think the most likely bad case scenario would be that rather than uh, the case going uh, in Israel's favour, that Israel succeeds in dragging the case out for months on end so that by the time a decision is actually made, the military operation is already nearing its conclusion or that the worst of the humanitarian emergency has receded. But either way, if the court rules in favour of South Africa, that is a critical threshold for the State of Israel because the whole point of Zionism is its claim 
uh, that one can only normalize the situation of Jewish people in the world by securing their representation by a legally recognized national state with the means to uh, militarily defend itself. It takes its statehood extremely seriously. And if that state is delegitimized in international law by having a ruling of genocide against it, it is in some trouble. So I think that this case is possibly more significant than the left would ordinarily assume about uh, an international legal case um, and possibly has more ramifications than most of the news reports are able to convey because they don't really discuss the contents of what is actually in South Africa's application. On the progress of Israel's assault on Gaza, the Israelis now claim to have essentially defeated Hamas in northern Gaza. The IDF's chief spokesperson, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, recently claimed that 12 Hamas battalions based in North Gaza uh, were no longer functioning as coherent fighting units. Do you think that's probably accurate? Uh, and what does that pretend for the South and the supposedly lower intensity phase of the conflict that the Israelis claim is commencing? To the best of my uh, knowledge, that is nonsense. We were told in November that northern Gaza Strip was subdued and the IDF had secured more or less full control. Now, there was already reason to be sceptical of this when the truce was organised and Hamas was able to orchestrate a comprehensive ceasefire, stopping the rockets immediately on all fronts, and then deliver hostages from houses and areas that the IDF allegedly controlled. That implied that the communications network was still there, and the chain of command was still there. Subsequently, in early December, just a day after the IDF once more claimed control of the north, it lost nine soldiers, including senior commanders in an ambush in the suburb of Shujaa in Gaza City. Just three days ago, having told us that Hamas's operation was a busted plus, uh, flush, they announced the death of a senior division commander in fighting the uh, in the north. They didn't say exactly where that was, but I believe there was fighting in Beit Lahia that day. So the fact that there is fighting and they're losing top commanders means they don't have control. That's the easy point. Um, then there's the question of damage to Hamas's military wing, the Al-Qassam Brigades. Israel claims to have killed upward of 7,000 Hamas fighters. Now, that would be a sizable chunk of the total fighting force, if true. And, of course, we have no reason to believe Israeli figures, but it would not constitute Hamas's military defeat or destruction. According to the Institute for the Study of War, which is a right-wing American foreign policy think tank with such board members as General Petraeus and William Kristol, the Al-Qassam Brigades are organized into between 26 to 30 battalions, each having between 400 to 1,000 men. And they say that of these, three of those battalions have been rendered inoperable, meaning destroyed. That's partly because of the mode of operation, because although the Al-Qassam Brigades are organized in conventional military terms uh, formats, rather than using, for example, decentralized cells, it's still hard to decapitate a particular unit because each unit has an echelon and a command hierarchy, ensuring that they can continue if a particular commander is wiped out. Now, about four or five others they mentioned have been degraded, meaning uh, presumably that they've lost substantial numbers of fighters and firepower. But this implies that the overall integrity of the outfit remains intact, with most of the battalions listed as combat effective. And it also seems to imply a lower military death count than Israel would have us believe. I would also suggest that we do not forget that Hamas is not the only military force operating in the Gaza Strip. 
As on the 7th of October, the fighting is currently being waged by about a dozen militias, including, crucially, the Fatah-aligned Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, um, the PFLP-aligned uh, uh, militias as well. We've also seen fighting between the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades and the Israeli military in the West Bank and in Israeli border areas, by the way. None of those militias appear to have collapsed or even be on the brink of collapse. And then, crucially... In addition to being unable to solve the military problem, they have no political solutions. You know, Hamas remains the only force capable of governing in Gaza. If there were an election tomorrow across the occupied territories, Hamas would win outright, according to three recent polls that I'm aware of. They're less popular in, in, in Gaza where they're incumbent than in the West Bank. Yet still they would gain at least a decisive plurality in Gaza and their popularity has only increased as a result of the war. What Israel, the Americans and some Arab states have come up with to deal with that are sketchy proposals to have Gaza ruled by Fatah, which I think actually really means the PA, the Palestinian Authority, rather than the Fatah-aligned forces that they've actually been fighting in both Gaza and the West Bank. And uh, I don't think that would last a day without Israeli military support. Or the alternative has been some nameless pan-Arab force. I mean, they haven't come up with an answer. One of the most important things to take out of this is the situation with regard to the resistant factions of Palestine has been utterly changed. I mean, it's no longer a straightforward beef between Hamas and Fatah that Israel can exploit. Through the Joint Operations Room, which uh, was founded in 2018 to unify the factions, they've been realigning in practice. Even if that hasn't materialized in a completely new organization yet, it does cut across the old lines of communication and creates new ones. In a recent article in The Guardian, security analysts Rajan Menon and Daniel DePetris wrote that the war in Gaza is certainly horrifying, but the risks of it escalating remains low, even if they cannot be ruled out entirely. Do you share that view? Uh, and in particular, uh, do you think it's possible that something which is, has been less discussed, escalation in the West Bank, may occur? Yeah, I mean... Uh, to state the obvious, it obviously isn't restricted to Gaza at the moment. I think globally among states and military establishments, there's a certain complacency about the West Bank. You know, I mean, the military attacks, such as the lethal assault in Jenin yesterday, and the pogroms carried out by the joint settler soldier militias, and the intensification of the colonization led by Smotrich and Ben Gabir, and the complete breakdown of the Palestinian Authority's legitimacy, all that to me suggests there's likely to be a social explosion of some sort. Um, now, if you add to that the fact that they've, uh, the Israelis have withheld hundreds of millions of dollars in tax receipts owed to the Palestinian Authority, and the fact that 15,000 workers who ordinarily traveled to Israel to work are now prevented from doing so, the economy's tanking. It's a really suffocating situation. Last year, they killed 450 people in the West Bank, which, were it not for the genocide in Gaza, would have been considered a significant escalation. They've been destroying homes, they've been destroying roads, they've been destroying utilities. The UN counts about 36 settler attacks per week, almost always enabled by the IDF. Checkpoints have increased by in number by about 30% in the last four years. And the IDF has just uh, issued a warning in the mouth of Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Halevi, who thinks it's quite likely that there will be a third intifada. And they're particularly worried not tellingly by the effects of settler violence or their own far bloodier operations, but by the economic crackdown. They're worried because they think that this will open up a new front that might begin to stretch their capacity, and Shin Bet apparently shares the same concerns. To get a sense of how realistic that is, you can just look at a number of indicators. I've mentioned polls in the West Bank. Uh, support for Hamas and armed resistance is through the roof. 
Second, since the start of the genocide in Gaza, West Bankers have been having weekly protests, which are in both Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Third, while Hamas has been disorganized and disrupted effectively in the West Bank, and that's partly because the, the PA helps the Israelis to locate and kill Hamas leaders, they still exist, they're still uh, likely to be recruiting, they will be cooperating with other groups like the Fatah, Line Dalaks and Martyrs Brigades. It's pretty clear that the Fatah grassroots are not happy with the status quo, and it's also worth bearing in mind that previous intifadas didn't require Hamas or any other militia to initiate them. They blew up quite unpredictably when some specific symbolic humiliation was too much. Now, how does Israel propose to cope with this? This really shows their utter complacency, even after the Al-Aqsa storm, um, or Al-Aqsa flood. Netanyahu recently visited the UAE, and he requested that they should pay the unemployment for the West Bank workers who can't enter Israel. I mean, the cheek of these people. They also want the Arab states, as you know, to fund Gaza's reconstruction after Israel has demolished it. And the Biden administration's been trying to sell that stinker too. Obviously, the UAE rebuffed this request, and uh, apparently they said sarcastically, you can ask Zelensky for the money, referring to the amount of military aid that's been given to Ukraine. So I think the basic position of the Israeli government is that they own Judea and Samaria, as they call it, that they will never permit the idea of a Palestinian state, that this entails complete and unyielding dedication to colonization, destruction of the Palestinian economy, political culture, and arms, and that insofar as they're concerned about possible resistance, it's only to the extent extent that it may be ill-timed for them tactically, but they have consistently underestimated the Palestinians. They've overestimated the force of arms. If there is an uprising in the West Bank, it will likely be armed in some way, but it will be politics that decides the form, specifically whether or not there can be a realignment and unification of the resistance based on willingness to uh, combat the occupation. Should that prove possible to operationalize in the West Bank, then I think we will see something like a more coordinated form of uh, uprising, possibly combined with the, the kind of um, aleatory uprisings that we've seen with the intifadas. It's a few weeks ago now, but I recall seeing a report, I think in the Times of Israel, suggesting that the Israelis are actually concerned that the uh, security forces of the Palestinian Authority are, are so demoralized that they might even shift position and, and, and start turning their weapons on, on, on the Israelis. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. Well, like I say, the um, interviews with Fatah members, um, and particularly with the Fatah youth, suggest that they're not happy with the current situation. And if that's the case, then I would be surprised if there wasn't an attempt to pursue some sort of resistance. I know the leadership is under pressure on this issue, and they're claiming that uh, they're, not, uh, they're not holding back the resistance. Their claim is that Israel is just trying to bait us, we're not going to be drawn, etc. I don't think that's going to work for very long. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. £5 patrons get access to PTO Extra, bonus episodes of the show, usually two per month, including listeners' questions episodes, where you can hear recent guests respond to comments and questions sent in by PTO supporters. Go to patreon.com forward slash pollTheoryOther to sign up. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.